Welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. In this episode of IM3 Investigates, I'm joined by Brian Eady, Director of the Steel and Metals Institute at Swansea, and Chris McDonald, CEO of the Materials Processing Institute in Middlesbrough. Today, both of my guests are also fellows of IOM3. Brian has significant experience in the steel industry, having worked for a range of steel companies before joining Swansea to set up the Steel and Metals Institute in 2013. He's actively involved in the Institute in a range of roles, including on the Iron and Steel Society board. Chris also has worked extensively in the steel industry. In recent years, he's become closely associated with decarbonisation initiatives, such as hydrogen technologies and the circular economy. As well as his day job, Chris has a number of national roles, including also as a member of the Iron and Steel Society board. Together, we will be looking at the challenges facing the steel industry as it seeks to decarbonise. Chris and Brian, hello to you both. Hello, Colin. Yeah, hi, Colin. Well, thanks both very much for joining me today. Just very quickly, just to set the scene, perhaps each of you can uh, introduce yourselves and your organisations in a little bit more detail. So, Brian, Steel and Metals Institute, uh, what, what does it do? What is it? Okay, Colin. Well, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me to take part in the event today. Um, the Steel and Metals Institute, which uh, is known locally as SAMI, uh, is based at Swan University in Wales. Uh, we're an open access research and innovation centre providing a wide range of equipment with access to a vast range of academic expertise. Uh, we partner with industry, other academic institutions and research and technology organisations to enhance knowledge exchange and acceleration of impact, focusing on identifying solutions to industrial challenges through a collaborative cluster of enhanced research capability. Uh, the Steel Metals Institute is the forerunner to the Steel Science Project, uh, which is part of the Swansea Bay City Deal. Thank you very much indeed, Brian. Chris, so you, you head up the Materials Processing Institute. What, what's that and, and what's that involved with? Yeah, that's right, Colin. And it's great to be talking to you and Brian today. So thanks for that. Uh, the Materials Processing Institute carries out industrial research, primarily for the steel industry, um, but for the, the metal sector and materials more broadly. And when we say research, what we're really focused on is the bit that makes money. So how to turn an idea into something of commercial value. We're at that uh, kind of market-facing bit of innovation. And we've been doing that for a long time. So the Institute's 75 years old now. We set up in the dying days of the Second World War. Um, and we've had many changes over that time. We started out very focused on the steel industry. But right now, decarbonisation and the circular economy are a big part of, of what we do and trying to meet those challenges for industry. I doubt very much, Chris, whether you've been at uh, the MPI since the dying days of the Second World War, but hey. Um, Chris, can you give us some context, please? Um, why does the future of the steel industry matter to us in the UK? Why not use stuff other than steel if it's so, so problematic? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually. I think particularly in the UK, uh, people have lost touch a bit with how important steel is. Um, so steel is essential for any modern manufacturing economy, and it might surprise listeners to realise that everyone in the UK consumes about a quarter of a tonne of steel 
every single year. So that's the amount of steel that we, we require for our economy. And there isn't really any sensible substitute for steel. So if you look globally at the materials people consume, um, we can cons people consume 10 times more cement than they do steel and 10 times more steel than wood. And then after that, you've got very low down things like aluminium, other metals, you know, and the carbon fibers are almost zero on the end of it. So for all of the things that we need in our daily lives, for sort of homes and factories, for transport, for getting about, for our kind of consumer goods, uh, steel is absolutely essential. And, and actually that's why steel is also a very political industry around the world. It's so fundamentally important to economies that national governments realise they need to have a strong steel industry in order for their economy to function properly. So really we're saying that there is no alternative to steel, but clearly there's an issue here with the impact that steel might have on the environment. And I think that's something that we could come on to talk about uh, quite a lot in this podcast. So Brian, how do you make steel? And, and how in particular do we make steel in the UK? Okay, well, um, I, I'm going to talk about uh, the UK, but also about glo global uh, considerations as well. But in, in the UK, steel continues to be dominated by the basic oxygen route, uh, which starts with a reduction of iron ore with coking coal and utilises around 20% of steel scrap in the steel making process. That particular process is uh, well developed to produce the advanced steels, used in automobiles, construction, consumer goods, electromotors, food packaging, transport infrastructure, the list goes on. It's almost endless. And according to the latest statistics, which I've taken from the World Steel Association in the UK, 79% of the volume of steel is, is produced via that route. So it's clearly the, the dominant route. The balance uh, produced via the electric arc steel making route which involves the remelting of scrap although interestingly the proportion of steel produced by the eaf process in the uk is lower than the world average the eaf route uh, lends itself more to uh, commoditized products such as steel reforcing bar on the one hand as is used in construction or where high purity products and tight specifications are needed, as in the production of materials for aerospace, like aircraft landing gear, for example, uh, and in medical applications. Importantly, energy costs amount to between 20 to 40 percent of the cost of steel production and, and varies depending on the production route, quality of raw materials, the operational control technology and material efficiency and, and many other things, of course. And, and the BOSS route is clearly more energy intensive than the production of steel using scrap due to the chemical energy required to reduce iron ore to iron using carbon-based uh, reducing agents. Overall, the energy consumption for the BOSS route is around 20 uh, gigajoules per tonne, uh, compared with around 4 gigajoules per tonne for, for EF. However, uh, around 90% of the energy consumed in the BOSS route actually comes from coal, which acts uh, as a reducing agent with just 7% from electricity. On the other hand, for the EAF route, the energy input from coal uh, is only around 10%, with 50% coming from electricity and 40% from natural gas. So they're quite significantly different uh, production routes uh, in, in that sense. But if you look on a global scale, there are massive variations in production method across the world. And if we look at China, for example, it produces 90% of steel through the BOSS route uh, and is the major producer of steel globally, 
then it is also the largest emitter of carbon dioxide as, as a nation. On the other hand, uh, if you look at the USA and Mexico, figures are reversed with around 70% of steel produced through the electric arc melting process. And I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to some of these reasons later. But basically, in the UK, production method is dominated currently by the BOSS process, but I suspect that will change as, as time goes by. And is that domination in the UK a, a bit historical? Because as I understand it, the electric arc furnace is a slightly newer technology than the original sort of melt and smelt. Yeah, but um, bearing in mind, um, you know, the, the, the BOSS process has been around for 150 years. The electric arc process has been around for about 120, 130 years. So it's neither a, a particularly new processes in, in that sense. Although the, the, the efficiency of each process has been developed beyond belief, I suppose, over many decades. And much of the work that MPI have done in the past has, has been supportive of, of this improvement. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have to bear in mind that steel plants are legacy assets, uh, sunken assets, I should say, where you know the expected lifetime of, of these assets is at least 20, 25 years. And, and the installation costs are, are, are enormous. So there's not a great appetite among steel makers to suddenly go fiddling with their integrated processes because of the, of the cost and the risk. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So Chris, we've heard a little bit about energy use. What, what are the main elements that make up the carbon emissions that we're worried about from, from steel processes? Yeah, we heard a bit about that from Brian. So, you know, when people talk about decarbonizing, I think there's an automatic assumption that you can switch a lot of your heat sources from gas or coal or whatever to electrification. And in fact, electrification is the key to decarbonizing in manufacturing, for instance, um, where we can switch to green sources of electricity for running factories. But there's a particular problem in the steel industry that is actually shared by many other materials industries, which is that the carbon isn't just a source of heat. It's also an important part of the product quality. It's part of the chemistry of the process as well. So specifically for steel, um, we take iron ore, which is a combination of iron and oxygen, and we strip the oxygen away from the iron to make uh, pure iron by using coal. So the coal strips that out, uh, but we produce carbon dioxide in the process. There's a very similar problems in the production of uh, lime, sorry, cement from limestone where carbon dioxide is produced intrinsically as part of the process. And then when we look further downstream, if we want to remove natural gas from some of our heating processes, and replace it with, with other source of it, sources of energy will have an impact on the product quality. So there's this, this kind of unique issue with steel where we're not just solving a heat problem, we're having to solve a chemistry problem at the same time. That's what makes this difficult. It's not impossible. We can't think of alternative technologies, but the, the step to do it is significantly uh, greater than, for instance, switching your domestic boiler with an electric heater or something like that at all. And I guess that means as well that you can worry about things like the, the transport emissions for the iron ore and, and, and for the finished products and all the rest of it. But again, there are, there are clear ideas about how we might decarbonize those methodologies. It is that basic chemistry point that's the really difficult one to overcome. It absolutely is. So, you know, the, the ancillary processes, things like transport, logistics and so on, they're, they're not uh, trivial, you know, but they are solvable and they're solvable without extreme cost. But if you go back to Brian's point about the, you know, the sunk cost, as it were, the sunk capital in the steel plant. If you want to switch from a, a, a process that is built around the use of carbon to a process that's 
built around some alternative, then it means taking out all of that billions of pounds of capital investment and switching to something else. It's really difficult for a private company to be able to justify doing that. But I think there is, there is an opportunity though, and there's an opportunity about timing that's worth mentioning, that particularly from a UK perspective, we're reaching the point when for many of those assets, that investment would be required anyway. And I think Brian would, would agree with me on this. When you reach the natural end of the life cycle, then you're going to switch, you're going to reinvest anyway. Now, naturally, you would want to invest in the same technology you've just been using. That's the safe thing to do. What we need to help the steel companies to do is to invest in the new technology, which is a bit more risky for them, um, and will embed them in that new technology for the next 20, 30 years. But to do that, and then they can decarbonize in a jump. Have we really sort of covered why we don't use electric arc furnaces? It's, it's historical, it's a cost barrier and so on and so forth. It's not really the right answer for us. Well, you know, I think from my view, at first sight, you know, moving to electric arc would appear to be a quick win. However, there are significant barriers to be overcome in terms of cost, uh, I would say the policy landscape, technology development and the, and the scrap supply chain. So firstly, if we look at energy and, and cost and, and supply, Make UK uh, report regularly that the cost of electrical energy in the UK for industrial consumers is something like 80% higher than that enjoyed by the industry in uh, Germany and France. Moreover, the cost of energy at peak times in the UK is prohibitive and some plants actually uh, reduce production uh, at these peak periods because it's just uneconomic for them to continue, uh, which impairs their, their productivity levels. And, you know, this is a significant problem for, for not just steel, actually, I would say for most of, of, of the energy intensive industries. Now, EF production consumes significantly greater amounts of electrical energy than the BOS process. So if you want to switch from BOS to EF, not only are you having to use more electrical energy, um, but you're having to use a lot more very expensive electrical energy. And uh, if, if, if we look at the, uh, the consumption levels, uh, in just in terms of electrical energy, EIF production consumes, roughly speaking, about 2 gigajoules per tonne, um, compared with 1.4 gigajoules per tonne for, for the BOSS route. And much of the energy, electrical energy generated within integrated steelworks where BOSS is applied is actually generated in-house by reutilization of waste gases. So it's important to have a reliable source of energy and one of sufficient magnitude and at a cost which the, the industry can, can compete with. And, and lack of investment in the development of power distribution networks across the UK and in particular in steelmaking regions, limits the options to introduce new capacity improvements by the energy supply companies. Although uh, it does not in, in itself uh, prevent the steelmakers from investing in their own capacity. Secondly, uh, the wide application for steel means that for some applications, the inclusions of tramp elements, which tend to sneak in from the scrap supply chain, can be easily tolerated. For example, a reinforcement bar. Uh, produced by EF, but for other applications such as advanced high strength steels and tin plate for food packaging, uh, the presence of any inclusions in, in, in the steel resulting from the tramp elements, you know, would render the product useless. On the other hand, there's a range of applications where it should be possible to widen the specification and uh, EPSRC have funded a prosperity project which is looking into this. 
But there are many other technical challenges, and I'm sure Chris could uh, talk about this as well uh, later, that exist but can be solved. And I think the important thing to remember with electric art steelmaking, it's not carbon-free. Obviously, it emits a, a lot less CO2 than, than the BOSS route. It's roughly a third. And then thirdly, uh, the two remaining BOSS plants in the UK, uh, Patalbot and Scunthorpe, uh, are both integrated steel plants. Uh, they utilise the waste gas for the downstream processing. Uh, so it's not easy, as Chris has already said, I think, to uh, recon reconfigure operations without major disruption, cost and risk. And the final point I would make is that the UK steel industry, by and large, is in foreign ownership and the respective owners have choices on where to invest. Uh, and the role of government should be to create an industrial policy and landscape that sends a clear signal that the UK government is serious about retaining and developing its national steel making capability. Then increased inward investment would become more realistic for those companies. There's a couple of things there I think that we ought to um, talk about. Uh, one was the, I love the phrase tramp elements, which I hadn't heard before, but um, I, 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 I'll come back onto that. But first of all, I think this this, this issue of, of energy use, Chris. So yes, we understand that there's a chemistry thing and we can talk about the chemistry thing in a moment, but energy use is clearly a huge issue for uh, these, these, these plants, whether it's arc furnace or basic oxygen. What scope is there to do something about the energy efficiency to improve that kind of situation? I know it's something that MPA has been looking at in the past. Yeah, so you know, on the, on the face of it, the plants are already incredibly energy efficient. So blast furnaces, for instance, already operate very close to the thermodynamic limit in terms of uh, the energy of the, the reaction that takes place there. Um, and yes, there is always more to do. And you know, we're, we're turning out sort of 0.1s of percents and so on uh, by making continuous improvement. But energy efficiency isn't going to get us to the decarbonisation target. That, that's going to require a wholesale shift in the production methodology. And ultimately, globally, it is going to lead to more electric melting and less blast furnace uh, melting. And that electric melting in places like the UK is going to involve more melting scrap. And in places that don't have a high scrap supply, it will involve some uh, kind of iron ore based process first and then electric melting after it. So that's, that is likely to be the outcome, I think, in terms of the future of the steel industry. Um, but, you know, I think the UK scenario, as Brian said, is really worth looking at. So in the UK, we've seen a decline not only in our coal based steel making, but also in our electric based steel making over the last two decades. Both have declined. And whilst they've declined, the amount of imports into the UK have increased significantly. So we now make less steel in the UK than we import. So less than 50% of the steel we use in the UK is made in the UK. Um, so there's a big market demand um, for steel in the UK that is not met domestically. And we have a big raw material surplus as well. So we export about seven or eight million tonnes of scrap from the UK overseas to be remelted and then re-import that as steel. So if you, if you look at that from a business perspective, masses of raw material, big market demand, and yet the domestic industry is declining. There's something wrong with the economics. And as Brian said, the thing that's challenging about the economics is ultimately energy, in this case, electricity price. And when, when we compare the electricity price in the UK with Germany, with France, we see a big disparity. That means that, uh, that our European competitors in Germany, in the Netherlands, in France, in Italy, in Spain, in all of these nations can make steel far more cheaply and import it into the UK. That isn't about labour cost. It isn't because they make more specialist products. It's simply because the electricity cost is, is lower in those countries. 
and that's a matter of policy. Um, so for a long time, the UK pursued a policy of carbon taxes on electricity in the hope that this would decarbonise industry and the impact on the steel industry has been to offshore it and then re-import the carbon. And what we need is a policy that reflects the uh, carbon embedded in imported products and puts our industry on a level playing field. And I think, I fear, without that, it will never be hugely competitive uh, for, to take up this opportunity to invest in the UK. We've talked a bit about the, the energy side of it, and clearly there's a little bit more to be done in terms of energy efficiency, but there are bigger issues around the pricing structure and so on and so forth. But I know that there are already some technologies being looked at to try and improve the chemistry side, to, to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide released through the reduction of the iron ore. Brian, do you want to say a, a little bit about some of those as well? Yeah, sure, Colin. Reducing carbon dioxide emissions in steelmaking must be tackled I believe, on a holistic and global level. In order to drastically reduce the overall CO2 emissions from the production of steel, the development of breakthrough technologies is crucial, and many promising breakthrough technology projects are ongoing in different parts of the world. Some projects are in the early uh, stages of research, while others are in pilot or, or demonstration phase. And some examples of, of that, and I, I will uh, show my impartiality to the European steel industry by giving three examples, um, starting uh, with SSAB in, in Sweden. Uh, they've partnered with uh, LKAB and Vattenfall, a mining and an energy company, uh, to develop what's known as a hybrid process. We've got a demonstration plant coming on stream in a few years' time, which will be using hydrogen as, as reductant. ThyssenKrupp in, in Germany uh, and RWE, the, the power company, uh, are also looking at something similar. Tata, on the other hand, uh, as part of uh, the Elcos project that all the uh, or most of the European steel industry were involved with, has gone down the route of Hisana, which will uh, use cyclone technology uh, and enable um, the uh, a significant reduction in CO2 emissions. However, if you're still going to use carbon as a as a reductant. Uh, likelihood is you're gonna have, you will produce CO2, and then you have to decide what you're going to do with that CO2. Do you convert it into something that's uh, of use, or do you bury it under the sea and hope it doesn't uh, reappear? So really, we we can move towards a number of things, um, moving away from boss production to electric steel making, as we've already discussed. This requires huge amounts of low cost shall we say, zero carbon energy to make both environmental and financial sense. Uh, we'd also need to re-engineer the scrap supply chain, uh, which are really set up for volume rather than quality of, of scrap supply. You're using hydrogen as a reducing agent. Well, I've already given some examples of that. However, you know, the cost of producing low carbon hydrogen is currently prohibitive. Um, so hopefully the, uh, the work that's been done in Sweden and Germany and elsewhere in the world will find some technological breakthroughs there to, to reduce the cost. Biomass is another option, um, which can partially substitute coal uh, using charcoal, for example, um, or other forms of biomass. But again, this has to be combined with carbon capture and utilisation or carbon capture capture and storage. Electrolysis is, is another method which is, is being researched and this uses electricity to uh, reduce the ore. However, 
yet again, you need huge volumes of electricity at, at a reasonable cost. Uh, so ultimately, every one of these technologies will have a role to play in cutting CO2 emissions. Uh, their implementation at a larger scale will require large quantities of carbon-free hydrogen, uh, biomass and electricity to be readily available, which implies actually a fundamental transformation of the global energy system. So Chris, you've done a lot of work on decarbonisation issues. What, what does this scene look like to you? What, what do you think is going to work and not work? What do you think the, the, the great hopes are in this space? So from a technological perspective, for countries that are very well advanced uh, industrially like the UK, it's credible that we could produce most of the steel that we want from the scrap that exists within our economy. So a circular economy approach, essentially. But every year, the demand for steel in the world increases simply because the number of people increase and because we want to raise the standards of living of people around the world. So we need some way of, of converting iron ore into steel. And if, if we're not going to do that by using carbon, then we need some other means of doing it. And for me, the technology that just seems to have the best potential is to use hydrogen instead of carbon. So there are many advantages to that. Um, the byproduct water rather than carbon dioxide. There are existing reactors that have been uh, developed for natural gas that seem adaptable for hydrogen. Um, and a number of the steel companies are betting on this as well. So Brian mentioned in Sweden, um, but also in, in Austria, in Japan, um, uh, steel companies are well advanced with this technology. So for me, if I, had, if I had to sort of, you know, put a bet on, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, that, that's where I would go. The real challenge around this, though, is, um, is, you know, you need a lot of green hydrogen then. You need masses of hydrogen produced from probably electrolysis, uh, from zero carbon electricity, or alternatively produced via steam methane reforming of, of, of crude oil, essentially methane, um, with carbon capture and storage. So, you know, those, those are the two possibilities. And, and the steel companies themselves can't solve that problem. So the steel companies can come up with a technology that will work for them, but there's a much bigger issue here, which is then how do we make a hydrogen economy work in any country or in multiple countries? How do we do generation, storage, you know, heat and power? Will our, will our homes be powered by hydrogen boilers? Will our factories? That, that's a bigger issue, actually. Um, and so I think in parallel with the steel industry implementing this technology, the basic infrastructure has to go in as well. And there is, there's a big role for government. There's a big role for states in coordinating that. Chris, you, you, you talked about in the UK, for example, perhaps there being enough scrap metal to to meet our steel needs. But isn't there this issue that Brian mentioned earlier of, uh, what was the phrase he used, tramp elements, which I, I take it are things that either deliberately or accidentally have got mixed in with the steel and therefore give you different properties. And the classic that I've always talked about was um, uh, copper mixed in with uh, steel can give you really bad results. H how do we address those sorts of issues? Yeah, Brian was right to mention that as well. So you'd see, right, copper is a particular issue for a certain particular grades of steel, particular products. Um, and we deal with that at the moment primarily by, uh, by sort of segregation by, or by dilution. Um, we could do that in the future as well. Um, so you could try and segregate out scrap types. But also I think more likely you'd lead to a combination process. For, so for the businesses that need to make those kinds of special steels, they might not use very much scrap. They might use mostly use iron ore that's been pre-reduced via, say, a hydrogen process, for instance. You get a bit of a bit of a mix. And actually, from the steel company point of view, that's quite advantageous because 
you know, you've got your scrap prices and your iron ore prices, and you can look at using both raw materials to optimize the value of your product. More of a challenge for me, I think, is nitrogen, um, which we don't really talk about very much. Um, but nitrogen is, um, is very much a problem in some very high-end automotive steels, strip steels, the stuff that makes up the body of a car. Um, and the nitrogen gets into the steel from the air. And in a traditional blast furnace and oxygen furnace steel making process, we can protect the steel from the air and we can stop the nitrogen getting in there. But in an electric arc furnace process, there's much more opportunity for uh, nitrogen to get into the steel. And once it's in there, we can't remove it. And so that's, that's actually quite a big quality barrier. Now, my, there is no technology in the world to solve this problem. My colleagues here at the Institute have come up with an idea and we're actively working on it in our pilot facility with an industrial partner. So if that's successful, it'll be the first in the world. But certainly at this stage, there's no guarantee that we can solve that problem. And that means we'll either have to make alternative materials choices or else um, find some sort of new process for making more nitrogen steel making. So one of the things that uh, occurred to me the other day, I was talking to somebody and, and, and they said, well, there's over three and a half thousand different grades of steel on the market. Um, in a slightly analogous world, people are really worried about the proliferation of different kinds of polymers in packaging and the problems that creates for recycling. Have we created the same kind of problem for ourselves by the range of different steel alloys on the market? And, and should we be thinking about having fewer? Is, is that the right way forward? In, in short, Colin, it does create some problems. So we've been excellent, I think, over the last few decades at optimising steel for very specific applications. So I, have a, I used to be a, a product development manager in a steel company, and I had a rule of thumb because we were introducing new products all the time. And my rule of thumb was that about two thirds of our portfolio of steel products was no more than 15 years old. So every 15 years, we're renewing two thirds of our products. And generally, we're doing that by introducing new chemical elements. What we never considered at that time was what would happen at end of life for those steels. How would they respond at end of life? And whilst I don't want to go into the detail of it, there are certainly two or three elements within steel, new steels that have gone into things like construction and so on over the last few years, where I and my colleagues here at the Institute are concerned about how they will respond when it comes to the recycling process. And we probably won't know that for another decade, actually. We can do trials and research now to prepare ourselves, but they'll be coming back into the system in about 10 years' time. Brian, what do you think about this challenge? Is, is, is there a big issue coming down the, the path at us in this space? Well, yeah, I, I, I think there is. Obviously, it'd be far better if there were less grades than, <laughs> than there are from a from a logistical point of view and a cash flow problem for, for the industry's concern. But uh, if if we if I just talk a little bit about the scrap uh, recovery route, uh, and you know, we we take an automobile at end of life, and and the the, the, the car is, is removed of everything that's easy to remove, but modern cars are virtually laptops on wheels, aren't they? You know, there's electrical connections running in all sorts of hidden space, uh, which, to be frank, is very, very difficult to remove. On top of that, the car body generally is, is galvanized, so it has a, a layer of zinc on top. And so what do we do? We strip out anything of value that's easy to or economic to remove at that point. Uh, and then we may decide either to uh, shred that and, and compact it into a big lump of, of metal, uh, or, or we just compress it straight away in, into a big lump of metal. So we put him back into our furnaces, whether it's electric arc 
or um, the the moss uh, steel making process a material which we already know is contaminated with zinc and copper and tin and goodness knows what else um, may be there um, and all of this adds complication to the manufacturing process so that's why i say really we we need to have a, a long hard look at the scrap supply chain to see how it can be improved and i'm not blaming the uh, the industry itself it's, it's evolved in a way that the steel industry demanded you know we want as cheap as possible scrap <laughs> at all times uh, and, and that leads you down a certain route it's it's not what i would call uh, a quality supply route and i think if if we moved somewhat in that direction and recover some of these materials and let's not forget that zinc uh, is is becoming more and more scarce uh, so by remelting um, and producing rebar which has got high levels of all sorts of what I call tramp elements, we're actually wasting material because they don't really need to be there. It's just they are there because they haven't been removed. So I, I think that's a, a big opportunity and really part of the solution of one of the many solutions to, to being able to use more uh, scrap in whether it's electric arc or in, in boss production. I think it, it's really interesting because this, this, this goes to something that Chris, you were talking about earlier, which is really what we're having to talk about, having to think about here, is total system redesign. There, there are different elements of this thing which have grown up in the way that they've grown up because they've grown up that way. And, and if we don't address each of those, each of them can become a huge blocker to a more circular economy in steel, don't you think, Chris? I think you're right. Um, so, you know, the approach that we like to take, that everyone likes to take, is a, is approach of incremental improvement. We bolt on something to the existing system to make it better or more efficient. And that climate change isn't going to be conducive to that. Uh, we need to make a fundamental shift from a carbon-based to uh, electric and hydrogen-based economy, for instance, or something similar. And the, the, there are knock-ons that, that cross over industrial sectors across from the private into the public sector space as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think a system redesign is a really great way to describe it, Colin. That was a challenge for keeping all of us in our uh, jobs for quite some time to come, I suspect, there. Um, we, we, we said a, a, a lot about the technology and the economics, but Chris, is the UK government trying to help in this space? Is it supporting decarbonisation of the steel industry? What's it doing? Yeah, I mean, the process started, I think, back in 2015, when some decarbonisation roadmaps were drawn up um, for the big energy intensive sectors in the UK. And at that point, I think thinking in the UK was quite advanced. Uh, but actually, the UK, you know, generally, the UK has been quite distracted by other issues in recent years. And, um, and I think as a result, we have started to fall behind. So where we were ahead in hydrogen, as Brian has described, we can see some other countries have, have uh, started to move ahead of us. The UK government has said quite specifically that they will launch a research fund for clean steel and for hydrogen in 2024, which will run through till 2030. Um, and whilst that's helpful, I, I think the timescale is, is just too long. It's too far away. Um, work really needs to start now to catch up with our competitors. And this is competitors not only from an industry perspective, but also from a national perspective as well. Um, that you know, There's the risk of the UK falling very severely behind other countries in terms of our efforts to decarbonise. Brian, uh, how, how do you think um, government should organise this? How do you think government in the UK and elsewhere, local government, national government, whatever else, should work with the steel industry? 
Well, I'm going to express a personal opinion, which is not necessarily that of my employer. I have to make, make that comment at the outset, but I, I don't necessarily feel that the UK government uh, recognises and embraces the importance of a strong and healthy industrial base in, in a sustainable economy. And in that context, I refer to the steel industry because the, ro the role of the steel industry needs to be considered within the context of a post-COVID industrial policy. Uh, and partnerships between the government, the foundation industries and the supply chains uh, and the broad supply chains, as I touched on earlier, um, you know, are fundamental to achieving a sustainable future. I mean, steel is infinitely recyclable. Its byproducts and waste energy is a valuable resources and are integral to developing a circular economy and the successful delivery and maintenance of a sustainable future. The challenges that we face are best overcome by industries working in partnership with local, regional and national governments, where the financial risks and the benefits are shared and the communities and the environment are the main beneficiaries. And too often, uh, certainly in my career, and I, I think Chris would, would agree with this, even though um, I'm a few years older than him, um, you know, we, we've seen huge, <laughs> huge reduction in, in the manufacturing capability across the UK. And, and the problem is that once this uh, capability uh, ends, it's never, ever replaced. Uh, at least that's been the, the, the trend uh, for the last 40 odd years. So, you know, the scale of investment will be enormous um, because it will include not only new investments in steel making itself, um, but also in the associated supply chain. So if you look at heat uh, distribution networks around local steelworks that may be supplying low grade heat to a hospital or a school, uh, the infrastructure cost of that alone is massive. If, if we're talking about carbon capture and utilisation by uh, transporting CO2 from a steel plant to an oil refinery maybe 80 miles away, um, then there's huge um, you know, infrastructure costs involved in that. However, that is an opportunity to help regenerate not just the steel industry, but the, the foundation industries themselves, because they will all benefit from, from that. So I think government's role really is, is to help uh, establish this national infrastructure uh, to make the whole thing work effectively. Um, and investment on this scale will act as a catalyst to help the UK economy recover uh, and prosper in the future. I think on that sort of societal point as well, you know, we, we as people who work in the industry, um, or people like myself and Brian who are very into technology and research, we can get really focused on the technology, even the economics of it, how the business model is going to work. But there's a societal shift here that we need to recognise as well. The UK government has got a net zero target of 2050. And I know a lot of companies are building their plans, investment plans around being able to hit that target on time. But as I keep pointing out to people in the industry, um, you know, the people who you are going to employ in 10 years time in 2030 are currently 10 years old. The people you're going to seek to employ in 2040 who will be vital for running your business haven't even been born yet. And, I, I, you know, I know, uh, you know, Colin, uh, you like me have got a family and I sort of look at my young kids and from their point of view, uh, anything that emits carbon is completely unacceptable. 
And I think we, we have to recognise as an industry that we might not have the luxury to get to 2050 and continue to survive, that actually deadlines like 2030 and 2040 will be determined by the communities in which the steel industry operate as, as being acceptable deadlines to decarbonise. So that urgency, that pressure, uh, runs far faster than legislation, and so the technology needs to be implemented much more quickly. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point to make and to to, to bear in mind in all of this. So we, we we've talked about the role of government in um, power. We've talked about it in terms of supporting some innovation. We've talked about it in terms of sort of the infrastructure context. Is there any other role that either of you would say? You know, I, I could do with the UK government being a bit more active in that, or I could do with the Welsh government being a bit more active in this, or, or anything like that. Or have we pretty much covered the, the ground on that? I, I think the key thing is, I mean, Chris touched on this very early on in the discussion that uh, UK citizens have kind of lost their connection with, with steel and the steel industry, even though it's all around us and in everything that we, we touch and, and use. Um, I, I think it's about raising the profile of, of that importance and how it impacts on our economy and, and how the steel industry can actually be used as, as a vehicle to decarbonize industry in general um, and, and the societal benefits that, that come from that. And, and it's very pleasing to see that, uh, you know, since we've been living in these strange times of, of COVID-19, how, how IOM3 have, have been running numerous uh, training interventions and and, and uh, lectures on online which which al allows and facilitates people to to tune in who may or may not be members of the institute but it, it just to to raise awareness and understanding and the importance of um, modifying our behaviors because we can't go on living as we are uh, every year we expect our goods to be cheaper than the year before um we are kind of conditioned to that way of thinking and have been for a long time but it's not really sustainable in, in the longer term and we, we all have to accept change and more importantly we all have to take personal responsibility for trying to reduce our own carbon footprint yeah, i think those are good points um chris any other views from you on what professional bodies like im3 should or could be doing to try and help this agenda move forward well, I think it's really important that as the professional institution, IOM3 is providing the space for that debate. It's kind of the crucible for the debate. And actually, we have seen that happen. So the Iron and Steel Society Board have run a very successful series of steel strategy seminars, generally about once every six months for the last few years, where many of the technologies that we've been talking about were introduced to the UK for the first time through that series of seminars. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a wider role as well, because the industry and their supply chains are reasonably fragmented. Um, and I know from my own experience, so I, I joined the Institute of Materials and my local society before I went up to university. And I've been supported by the Institute for, uh, you know, for a couple of decades now throughout my career. And I'm happy to, to, to give more back as well. I'm the one organizing the events rather than going to them now. And that kind of that supportive network, that peer group network, um, people who are sharing skills that are kind of rare and valuable skills within the context of industry in the UK is incredibly important. So I think continuing to provide that space for this debate and that support for people in the industry is vitally important. 
thank you both very much indeed. I don't know about you, but I found that a fascinating period of time. I can't even remember how long we've been talking. It's been so uh, enjoyable. Thank you. It's been fun. I think I've said everything (laughs) to say. information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify